This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Today, we're going to get an update on the state of small business in the United States from Margaret Anadu, who leads our firm's Urban Investment Group. Margaret was on the program last month, and we're delighted to have her back. We'll talk a lot about the PPP program, including how the strategies played out to get money in the hands of small businesses and what Margaret and her team have been doing to create partnerships to deploy that capital, some trends that have emerged when it comes to lending support, and the road ahead. Margaret, welcome back to the program. Jake, thanks for having me. So it's now been seven weeks or so since the CARES Act was signed into law and the Paycheck Protection Program, or PPP program, was created. As listeners may know, the PPP initiative was one of the key federal relief efforts, and it provides emergency loans to small businesses. But that relief did not come right away. Tell us about how you and your team approached small business lending when the crisis first emerged before there was federal legislation. Sure. So back in March, when this became a U.S. crisis, we were in touch with many of the business owners that we've known for years through our 10,000 Small Businesses Initiative. And We knew that they needed capital immediately and were concerned about their ability to survive. So knowing that federal relief might take some time, we started pushing forward with local public-private partnerships to get capital to businesses. You know, from the start, we knew this crisis would require strong partnerships. Of course, the financial capital was needed, but also philanthropic capital, human capital, and, and the real social capital in these relationships. So before the CARES Act was passed, We set up an emergency small business loan fund for New Yorkers directly in partnership with local government through the city's small business agency and a mission-driven lender that we'd actually worked with previously in times of crisis before to provide loans for impacted small businesses. And the goal was to get 0% interest loan capital to as many businesses as possible, as quickly as possible. And then within a week of the New York facility, we worked to set up a similar program in Chicago. So These emergency loan funds help bridge some of the gap that these local businesses were feeling in the weeks leading up to the launch of PPP. Once the CARES Act was passed and the PPP program was launched, what came next for the strategy? How did it evolve? Sure. So knowing how rapidly the crisis was expanding, we knew we needed to supplement the conversations we were having and anecdotes we were all hearing with more data. We knew that Concrete data would help ensure that our efforts would actually reach the businesses most in need. So as our PPP strategy was getting off the ground, we sent our second pulse survey to thousands of small businesses owners throughout the U.S. And we learned a lot from this group. You know, first, we heard that there was incredible interest and optimism about the program. More than 90% of respondents had tried to apply in the first few weeks. And for those who were approved, nearly 80% said they were confident their business would survive. And importantly, they believe that they would ultimately be able to retain the majority of that workforce. And this was despite all of the disruption caused by forced closures and for many, you know, very heart-wrenching layoff decisions in the interim. So for those business owners who were aware of the program, who you know, understood its nuances and had a bank to turn to for a loan, it seemed hugely beneficial. You know, unfortunately, this just wasn't the reality for most at that stage. You know, one glaring takeaway in the data from our survey was the plight of Black-owned businesses. So if you compare those businesses to all small businesses, they had double-digit disparities in the PPP application rate and the approval rate. They were 12% less likely to be able to apply. And out of those who applied, you know, they were 12% less likely to actually get through that queue and get the approval. 
And so this lack of access was coupled with, with great need that we saw as well. You know, 26% of the black business owners that we surveyed shared that they had less than one month of cash reserves on hand. And as you can imagine, we found this deeply troubled and it was clear we all needed to do better and we needed to do so urgently. So when we committed the $250 million in lending capital for small businesses and eventually doubled that to $500 million to make PPP loans, we decided to do so solely through community development financial institutions called CDFIs and other mission-driven lenders. And we've worked with CDFIs for over a decade all around the U.S. as part of our 10,000 small businesses program. We know these organizations. We know they reach underserved areas, you know, how they reach them. We know their infrastructure. And with all that, we know that they're best positioned to reach the most vulnerable businesses who are being left out. Ultimately, we provided lending facilities to six organizations, four of whom are minority-led, including you know, two of the most active Black-led CDFIs in the country. And sensing that the enormous demand for PPP loans would strain these community lenders, and quite frankly, as it would any institution needing to move at this pace to execute a brand new program, we also provided $25 million in grants for these lenders and others to build additional operating capacity as soon as possible. This allowed them to you know, make immediate hires, so there was additional support for the small businesses. And some were able to make real-time technology updates to help process the huge influx of loans. So we think this targeted philanthropic commitment has played you know, meaningful role in helping the CDFIs deploy more capital more quickly. And as, as you know, Jake, for some small businesses, getting this money quickly it really is the difference between being able to you know, pay bills and continue to operate, even if it's at a reduced capacity or, or going out of business entirely. So, Margaret, how's it going now? Tell us more about the small businesses you've been able to reach with that approach. And what trends do you see emerge as you deployed this capital? You know, first, our capital has reached very small businesses, just as we, as we hoped it would. So across the 8,000 loans to date around the country, the median employee count is just three. These are you know, businesses like the two-woman clothing design shop who, after receiving her loan, pivoted to creating face masks when there was a shortage in her community in Louisiana, or the florist in Chicago who never before needed a loan for her business, which you know, she'd been operating successfully for over two decades when every single one of her upcoming events was canceled due to stay-home orders, or you know, the solo hairdresser in Detroit whose business completely dried up overnight. And to serve these much smaller businesses, our community lending partners made much smaller loans. The Average loan size to date has been about 61000 which is less than half of the size of the average PPP loan nationwide. And in places like Alabama and Ohio, our lenders made loans as small as $500. So our partners are reaching the exact same businesses that initially struggled in this process because they didn't have bank relationships or needed assistance in pulling together the paperwork and many who'd simply never taken out a loan before. And then the second thing that's noteworthy to date in the data that we've seen is beyond the small size of the businesses and the loans is where these businesses are. A third of the capital to date has gone to businesses operating in low-income communities, and roughly half of our lending capital was deployed in minority neighborhoods. This is really important, right, is we need to ensure that the same communities and business owners and workforce that are being disproportionately impacted by you know, the disastrous negative health outcomes don't have to suffer even further because they don't get the economic relief they need. And so, for example, in a place like New Orleans, where COVID cases have been incredibly high per capita and the death rate for Blacks is simply staggering, 
you know, we're really proud that our community lender there, Hope Enterprise, has been very effective in reaching underserved businesses with over 60% of the lending capital there going to businesses in poor neighborhoods and almost 80% of the capital reaching Black communities. That's a real testament to Hope's approach in the city because we know that nearly half of Black households around the country are unbanked or underbanked. So we're encouraged that even with that, such a large portion of our capital reached those minority neighborhoods. And so when we take all of these figures together, we believe these trends validate the importance of supporting these community lenders who are successfully reaching some of the hardest hit businesses in some of the hardest hit places during, during this really tough time. And, you know, actually a lot of what's promising about these lenders, it doesn't even come through in, you know, the trends or the numbers. You know, we've received countless notes from businesses who were surprised and, you know, in some cases emotionally overwhelmed that these lenders would spend real time with them to understand the program, fill out the application and be there as a resource throughout the process. So in the midst of a crisis like this, there's a lot of focus on the big macro stats and the numbers are so unprecedented, they're hard to fathom. But a lot of the stories that get lost, talk about some of the different business owners you've reached and some of the partnerships you've been able to create. So, you know, we and our lenders are using many different approaches to, to get to businesses. So one example is our partnership with the Brooklyn Navy Yard. This is a not-for-profit landlord. You know, they, they host many of our most innovative and industrial businesses right here in New York City. And we worked with them and our local lending partner, Pursuit, to get loans to over 60 businesses that operate there. So from, you know, light manufacturing businesses to not-for-profits to the restaurants that serve the workers there, you know, it's businesses like these, which will be so critical to reopening, but yet also face such frustration in getting a PPP loan. You know, something else that jumped out to us and what we've done so far was how much of our capital has reached barbers and nail salons, you know, hundreds. These are businesses that may have been successful without ever needing a loan or a relationship with a bank. And yet without a PPP loan in this crisis, many would have permanently closed and left empty storefronts on you know, main streets all over the country. And actually, one of my kind of favorite approaches over the last few weeks, you know, was out of our partner Hope to reach churches in their communities in the South. So the goal was to make sure as many churches as possible receive loans, not only to support you know, their own finances and employees through this crisis, but also because of the important role these same churches would play in raising awareness about PPP loans for all of the you know, businesses and, and sole proprietorships and independent contractors within their communities, but also in the recovery, right? These faith-based institutions are going to need to be as strong as ever you know, to help in the healing of these communities. You know, one of these loans actually went to a small church in Birmingham, Alabama. And when they sent over the articles of incorporation to complete the loan application, it was handwritten from the 1890s, you know. So, look, there's a lot more work to do in neighborhoods across the country. And, you know, we're excited that today our lenders are still working. They're reaching businesses as we speak. And, you know, they're going to support as many small businesses as possible while this capital is available. So, I mean, everyone knows that small businesses will be critical to restarting the economy and, and the broader recovery efforts. What are small businesses going to need beyond lending capital? They're going to need to be heard. Um, so PVP actually provided a great example of how what's needed for small businesses needs to be driven and designed by the small businesses themselves, right? They know their challenges best and they know what's needed to overcome them. So now more than ever, we see an opportunity to help elevate the voice of small businesses. We're in the process of organizing a you know, virtual fly-in to Capitol Hill next month to 
allow this community of small business owners to engage with their representatives in Washington in what's expected to be the largest virtual fly-in to date. We're, we're super excited about this, and we believe it'll be an excellent opportunity to allow small business voices to you know, be heard and allow them to share their views directly and give their perspective on what's working. And you know, equally important, it'll also be a platform to understand what's not working, to allow lawmakers to hear their concerns with relief efforts and reopening plans and to discuss ideas for possible changes in future legislation that would even better help them you know, survive in the near term and, and hopefully get back to thriving. And so this is just the first step in providing a platform for small businesses to, to share their views alongside the virtual flying. We're launching a long-term initiative called 10,000 Small Business Voices, and that will allow the interests of small businesses to be better heard at the federal, state, and local level, not just, you know, in this moment, in this crisis, but really as we, as we go, as we move forward. So your, your team is focused on, the Urban Investment Group is focused on revitalization of underserved communities. And those communities have been particularly hard hit in this crisis and well beyond the small business lending you've done. How are you thinking about what's, what's top of mind for that group and, and the road ahead and, and what the challenges are? Yeah, I mean, we remain really focused on the places where, where we've been investing for years. These are the underserved, mostly majority minority neighborhoods across the country, like, you know, South Baltimore or, you know, Treme, New Orleans, you know, parts of Queens right here in New York. And I don't think that there is, you know, a piece of data or, or, or stat that's more, quite frankly, unfathomable and, and shocking than the data that came out of the Fed last week. So this is um, the point that if you look at households where the incomes are 40000 a year and below, 40% of those households lost a job in March alone, right? Just take that in for a second. 40% of lower income households in this country have suffered a job loss. So that is, it's, it's, it's very focusing, right? It, we, you know, we know about the, the needs of these communities beforehand, but if you're talking about unemployment that's that concentrated in these communities, we know we need to double down on many of the same things that these communities needed prior to this pandemic and now need even more. That's quality, affordable housing. That's enough jobs, especially those with pathways for career advancement and a real shot at the middle class and better access to healthcare and a quality education. All of those things come together. And even, you know, things that, you know, these communities have been lacking. So, you know, we, you know, we talk about broadband access in rural areas and some of the the lower income parts of cities, you know, we saw that literally play out as people not only tried to access PPP loans, but tried to figure out how to educate their kids at home. So we know this will be very difficult with the budget cuts slated to come as a result of, you know, all the unanticipated spending on on COVID, of course. And we know there'll be really tough choices facing local leaders across the country. But despite the enormity of these challenges, I am you know, optimistic that the public sector and private sector can come together, you know, as we've done in, in the past to create innovative solutions. If there's any, you know, even tiny, you know, silver lining out of all of this, you know, these issues are, are at the forefront. We know which communities are hurting. We see the data. And, you know, I think we all also know that it's not about kind of how you prepare in the crisis, but it's about the infrastructure that's, that's there before. And so we need to uh, double down, but really triple down on what we do to really rebuild the infrastructure in these communities, both you know physical and social. And to do that, we have to be mindful to ensure that our efforts, and this is you know our efforts to support 
all businesses and all communities are inclusive and particularly focused on areas and groups that are impacted the most. And if we can learn from the lessons of past crises and recoveries that all too often exacerbated inequality, you know, I'm hopeful that through this recovery and reopening, we can create stronger and more resilient neighborhoods you know, that are better positioned to, to weather crises in the future. Well, Margaret, a sobering take, but, but I appreciate your optimism. Thanks for joining us again today, Margaret. Thanks for having me, Jake. That concludes this episode of Exchanges Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed this, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. And tune in for our weekly markets update Friday morning, where leaders around the firm provide a quick take on the latest in markets. This podcast was recorded on Monday, May 18th, 2020. Thank you. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.